to uh, 2 Corinthians chapter 11. Uh, Last Sunday, we began looking at a passage where Paul said he was going to partake uh, in some foolishness, and uh, he just kind of got started with that, uh, and then he got sidetracked talking about uh, false apostles, teachers uh, who were purveyors of a... um, of a false gospel, what he called a different gospel, presenting a Jesus who's different than the Jesus of the Bible. And these teachers will come and disguise themselves as Christians, pretending to, to uh, be and, and looking like men and women of God. And Paul warns us that we shouldn't be surprised about that uh, because that's exactly what Satan himself does. Uh, We saw verse 14, no wonder, for even Satan disguises himself as an angel of light. Um, So we must always be on our guard against uh, teaching that that would stray from the truth of the gospel. Um. But uh, now he wants to get us back on track with the foolishness that he said he was going to partake in in defending himself, uh, contrasting himself with the false teachers. Um, and uh, does that, Second Corinthians chapter 11, starting at verse 16. Look at all he gets us back on track. He says, again, I say, let no one think me foolish, but if you do, receive me even as foolish so that I also may boast a little. What I am saying, I am not saying as the Lord would, but as in foolishness, in this confidence of boasting. Since many boast according to the flesh, I will boast also. Father God, again, we just thank you that your word is living and active and sharper than any two-edged sword. We pray that it would do its work in our hearts and lives today. In your name, amen. In verse 16, he starts with that word again because he wants to get us back on track after he got you know, sidetracked with the false teachers that are presenting themselves as genuine Christians. So uh, he's about to launch his defense of himself, but, he, but he's doing so reluctantly. And you can tell it's reluctant because all the disclaimers he puts in there of how foolish it is and how stupid it is to be able to have to do this. So that's what he says there basically in... in uh, Verse 16 is that, you know, I don't want you to really think that I'm this kind of foolish, but since you guys accept the foolishness of those false teachers, well, then accept me as well while I boast a little bit against their, you know, extreme boasting. And to show you how out of character it is for him and and really should be for any true or genuine Christian, he adds this thought in verse 17, what I am saying, I'm not saying as the Lord would, but in foolishness in this confidence uh, of boasting. In other words, he's saying, man, you would never see Jesus doing this, but I feel like this is what I have to do. And why, why does he feel that way? Well, there's two main reasons. Verse 18 gives one, since many boast according to the flesh, I will boast also. The many in this verse would be those false teachers and that uh, small group of people that are still following them, that the, the group that these final chapters in 2 Corinthians are really targeted towards. That's the many in this case. And he's saying that boasting seems to be the only means of communication that these guys uh, are really willing to listen to and, and understand. And, and the church itself was swayed that way. And you guys are being influenced by that. So that's what I'm going to do here. But the second reason is found in chapter 12, verse 11, where it says, I have become foolish. You yourselves compelled me. 
Actually, I should have been commended by you for in no respect was I inferior to the most eminent apostles, even though I'm a nobody. Okay, so he's basically saying, you guys knew who I was, but you discarded that. Now you've compelled me to have to put this case out here uh, in, in front of you. Um, uh, they, they, they forced his hand. And as such, he uses then a little bit of sarcasm to make the point of how stupid this is. And, and by the way, uh, he's, you know, the last couple of weeks we've talked about some of the sarcasm he uses quite a bit in, in uh, especially 2 Corinthians, uh, some in 1 Corinthians, not so much anywhere else. Uh, sarcasm is not really a means of communication that I would recommend. Uh, on a regular. I just want you to know that, even though we're pointing this out here. Uh, you know, sarcasm uh, is, is defined in the dictionary as uh, sharply ironical taunt, a sneering or cutting remark, harsh or bitter derision or irony. It basically, sarcasm is saying the opposite of what you mean, but you're saying it in a tone of voice to make it clear that the words you're actually using aren't what you mean. It's the opposite uh, that you're thinking, right? And, and uh, oftentimes, sarcasm is used to cut down another person, to, to hurt them. And of course, so in that means, it is not a, a positive uh, uh, type of communication. But in this particular case, Paul is... Uh, directing the the sarcasm generally, just out there, not not to any specific person, and, and he's using it to drive home a point that they just don't seem to be getting any other way. And, and uh, that is one benefit of sarcasm: is it makes a strong point. And, and so he's using that. Listen, listen to verse nineteen. It says, "For you, being so wise, tolerate." the foolish gladly. I mean, that statement is just dripping with sarcasm, isn't it? And and, and then look at how he goes on. For you tolerate it if anyone enslaves you, anyone devours you, anyone takes advantage of you, anyone exalts himself, anyone hits you in the face. So think about it. Is it really wise to tolerate a teacher who abuses you, fleeces you financially, and then passes on all kinds of falsehoods to you? Obviously not. Uh, so Paul is really meaning that they're stupid, not wise. And he just wanted them to get that point. And he puts an exclamation on that argument with, with uh, another closing sarcastic statement in the first half of verse 21. To my shame, I must say that we have been weak by comparison. He's just saying, you guys, uh, we're not anything like that. And, and can't you see the difference? I mean, why am I even having to say this? Why am I having to bring this out? Can't you guys see this difference? But having closed the, the, those introductory remarks, he then begins his, his uh, defense of his apostolic credentials and, and the contrast of himself versus these false teachers. And he does so again with a disclaimer in its foolishness, right? But in whatever respect anyone else is bold, I speak in foolishness, I am just as bold myself. And then... He starts uh, his defense with some biographical material. Apparently, these false teachers, these apostles, uh, were saying that their Jewish pedigree made them more reliable, more trustworthy as teachers. And Paul's response to that in verse, is verse 22. Are they Hebrews? So am I. Are they Israelites? So am I. Are they descendant from Abraham? So am I. 
I mean, he was every bit as much a part of God's chosen people as the most distinguished Jew uh, among them. He had that same background and heritage. Uh, Not that that made any difference to Paul anymore in Christ. It didn't make any difference uh, who you are. But these people thought it was a big deal. Apparently, these, these false teachers were either lying or they were ignorant uh, of Paul's heritage, and so they were trying to slander him in that to make it uh, seem like he just wasn't as important of a person. So Paul affirmed his full Jewishness for them. But then Paul moves on to what is far more important than his lineage. Are they servants of Christ? I speak as if insane, I more so. See, again, Paul knows it's madness, right? It's, it's insanity to try to compare one servant of Christ with another. We saw that in a previous message, that it's only Jesus who gets to evaluate his servants. It's not up to you and to me to judge one another as believers. But Paul does it here because these guys aren't true servants of Christ. Remember, they're, they're in disguise, And the Corinthian church needs to see the difference between them. So he's going to start listing his credentials. Now, let me ask you a question. If you were going to show the world what kind of servant of Christ you are, if you wanted to prove your credentials as a Christian leader and as a faithful follower of Jesus Christ, what kind of things in your life would you highlight? Right? I mean, it would be all the accomplishments and all the, all the good stuff that's happened, right? That, that's what we would bring up. I mean, think about the way that the media has been covering the death of Billy Graham, right? And, and what they're highlighting to show what kind of man of God he was. They talk about the, the multitude of people that he has spoken to, right? It, it was estimated that he has spoken live to 215 million people people 215 million and then countless more through radio and television they talk of packed stadiums 100,000 people squished in together and thousands upon thousands streaming forward at the invitation to receive Christ they speak of the fact that he has spoken uh, and met with every sitting president since World War II. Every single one, except for Donald Trump. And they were scheduled to meet, but sickness, uh, in my understanding, sickness uh, uh, made that uh, not work out. Paul, he, he took a very different approach than our current media improving his servanthood and his apostolic credentials. So I've got a lengthier passage here. Just listen to what he highlighted from his life. Are they servants of Christ? I speak as if in saying, I more so. In far more labors, in far more imprisonments, beaten times without number, often in danger of death. Five times I received from the Jews 39 lashes. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned. Three times I was shipwrecked. A night and a day I have spent in the deep. I have been in frequent journeys 
I have been on frequent journeys in danger from rivers, danger from robbers, dangers from my countrymen, dangers from the Gentiles, dangers in the city, dangers in the wilderness, dangers in the sea, dangers among false brethren. I have been in labor and hardship through many sleepless nights in hunger and thirst, often without food, in cold and exposure. That's his list of credentials. Did you know that, that just only a small portion of the Apostle Paul's life and his adventures as a missionary uh, um, uh, are recorded for us in the book of, of Acts? We, we don't even know the story behind many of the things that he's listing off here. Before we look at just a couple of those things, I want to ask you another question. In what way does this list substantiate his servanthood to Christ? How does it authenticate his apostleship? I mean, that's what he's supposed to be doing, right? That's what he's defending. How, how does this list do that? Well, think of it like this. How did Jesus describe those who would do ministry in his name? He described them like this. Behold, I send you out as sheep in the midst of wolves. Or how did God, through the Apostle Paul, uh, say what would happen to all those who truly wanted to live faithful, godly lives. He said, indeed, all who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. And according to Paul's own testimony, which we can read in the book of Acts, what did Jesus say to the man that was sent to Paul, remember Paul was blinded on the road and a man was sent to him. What did Jesus say to that man would be true about the Apostle Paul? He said this, For I will show him how much he must suffer for my name's sake. These false teachers, well, they were living posh and luxurious lives off the money taken from hard-working church members. They were living in safety and security and comfort. Paul's proof of the authenticity of his faith and apostleship was the fact that he was actually out in the world ministering and putting himself in danger and paying the price for it. These are the things that have happened to me because of my ministry, my servant to Christ. Far more than any statistics of numbers or people, these things proved his credentials. I mean, he goes on to share another story where he was in danger, where he had to be snuck out of a city like a common criminal. Look at verses 32 and 33. In Damascus, the ethnarch un, uh, under Eratus, the king, was guarding the city of the Damascenes and ordered, in order to seize me. And I was let down in a basket through a window in the wall and so escaped his hand. See, that, that was his life. And his life proved his servanthood to Christ. So without, 
going into any details, let's just pull out a couple of Paul's trials to look at. He said five times he received 39 lashes from the Jews. Lashes were done with this large leather belt, uh, several inches wide and long enough uh, so when the person was stripped down and it was struck across his back, the front would wrap around and it had to hit all the way to the belly button. So it was a, it was a, a, a brutal um, type of punishment and oftentimes the, the God limited the the number to 40 uh, that a person could be and so they stopped at 39 just to make sure they didn't go one too many and and um, and uh, oftentimes if a person was uh, weakened in any ways they would die before the 39 lashes were over that's how brutal it was and this this was persecution from from his own people the ones who were supposed to know God, who were supposed to be following Him. And then it says that three times He was beaten with rods. This was a Roman punishment. Uh, they used a cane pole, uh, three and a half to four feet long, about an inch thick. It was such a brutal beating that it could rip flesh off, it could break bones. This was persecution from the unbelieving, the pagan world. And it was completely unjust. Roman law forbid that any Roman citizen, this was such a brutal type of punishment that Roman law forbid that any Roman citizen could be beaten with rods. But Paul was a Roman citizen. And yet it happened to him three times. They either didn't care or didn't know, take time to bother to find out whether he was a Roman citizen. Completely unjust suffering. And that says uh, that he was shipwrecked many times and actually spent a night and a day floating out in the ocean. I mean, how would you like uh, to be out in the dark, floating in the deep, dark sea, not knowing what's lurking below you? I mean, that would just kind of freak you out through the night or let alone during the day, wouldn't it? And, and these are just the perils that come from living in a broken world where accidents and, and bad things happen. And, and yet these things happen, uh, they can happen to anybody at any time, but they happen more to people who are out doing stuff. Because see, if Paul was not out on mission, he wouldn't have not been out on a boat and he wouldn't have gotten shipwrecked. So Paul offered all these things as proofs of his apostleship, of, of proofs, the evidences that he was serving Jesus Christ. And, and maybe you're thinking, well, you know, okay, that's all, you know, fine and good and it's an interesting confrontation, you know, between Paul and these false teachers and all that kind of stuff, but what does any of this have to do with me today? Well, what difference does this make for us? And, that, and that's a fair question. I mean, yeah, it provides some interesting biographical material about Paul. There's definitely enough adventure to, to keep the plot of an adventure movie going if you're going to make one for that. But, but what does it really mean for us? Well, let me, let me tell you a short story. When I was in uh, high school, I used to do a fair amount of technical rock climbing with a, a friend of mine named Jeff. And... Uh, uh, on one particular trip, we went out to, to climb uh, out in the Needles. You can see a picture of the Needles Eye out there in Custer State Park. So that's the type of stuff uh, we were climbing, spires like that. 
uh, in case you've never been there, right next to the needle's eye, there, there's another great big spire called uh, the Hitching Post. A- and uh, it's a super easy climb. Uh, rock climbing uh, ha- has been ranked in difficulty from, from 5.0 to 5.15, right? And, and anything from 5.10 to 5.15 is considered expert level. Uh, 5.0 is about the same difficulty as climbing a ladder. I mean, liter- literally. I mean, it's just, it's just right up there type of thing. So the hitching post, uh, the hitching post is, is a 5.1. Uh, super easy. So easy that most rock climbers uh, don't even use any equipment. They just climb up, sign their name at the register at top, and climb back down. It's that, it's that simple. But there's quite a few tourists around uh, the Needle's Eye, as there generally is in the summer, and Jeff and I thought, We'd like to put on a show for the tourists. Why? Well, because that's what teenage boys do, you know? Uh, and, and, uh, and tourists like that kind of stuff. So we pulled every piece of climbing equipment that Jeff owned out of his vehicle. And, and, and you know, we had a har- our, our harnesses on. We had each of us a coil of rope strapped over our shoulder. And, and we just strapped on as much of his equipment on our harnesses as we could. So we're walking towards uh, the rock, clanging, you know, and we got locking Ds and carabiners and hexes and, and, and all this stuff. Equipment that we've never used uh, uh, in any climb hanging from us. And by this time, there's quite a few tourists gathering around. We go over and we survey this rock like we're looking for the best route up it. And, 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 you know, it's so easy. There's handholds, footholds all over the place. But when you're on the ground looking up, you can't really see that. It, lo- it just looks like a cliff face. So we start going up. And, and, and of course, it's easy enough. It would take about two minutes to climb up it. But, no, we're taking our time, making it look as hard as possible for the tourists. So, you know, instead of grabbing this handhold right here and this handhold right here, we would stretch for one way over there and make it go this. Instead of using the foothold that would be right there, like going up a steep steps, you know, uh, we would find a, a foothold that was out, you know, about chest height. And we're putting our foot all the way up there and then stretching off to the side. So we're, we're practically sideways on the rock and you could hear the oohs and ahs of the crowd below, you know. And, and, and so it was, it was a great time. We, we, we work our way all the way to the top. And then, of course, instead of just climbing down, we're going we're gonna to rappel down because that's what people like is the repelling, you know, where you get the ropes set up and throw them over and now a bigger crowd's gathering. And, and then we start looking at all our equipment and all the equipment we grabbed, we forgot to grab a Super 8 belay device, which is the piece of equipment that you use when you're repelling to weave the ropes through to act as a brake to slow you down so that you can do things. We didn't have that. So, so Jeff says... Not to worry, he can jury-rig a a, a Super 8 using several of the carabiners. So he hooks a bunch of the carabiners together, and we weave the ropes through that. And and, and then I uh, am going to go first, and using proper repelling technique, you you stand on the edge of the cliff like this, uh, backwards, and and then you just lean back all at once until your feet are perpendicular to the cliff. Okay, and, and, and that's proper rappelling technique. And so I do that. Well, as soon as you do that, of course, it puts all kinds of pressure on the rope, and that's where your device is supposed to then uh, slow down and break you. And, and when I did that, and I leaned all the way back, all the carabiners popped off. Now, we're about 40 feet in the air, and I'm leaning over this rock with nothing but my hands holding onto the rope. And Jeff says, Oops. Now, when you're hanging over the edge of the cliff, you don't want your climbing partner to say, oops. 
So fortunately, I had a good grip and enough upper body strength. I, I pulled myself back up, standing position, got back up on the rock. Well, uh, Jeff um, uh, had uh, determined that uh, he, he, he hooked it up backwards. <laughs> so, so when the pressure hit the rope, instead of tightening and, and adding that friction that would slow you down, it popped all the carabiners off. And so um, he, uh, he re-rigged it, and uh, we, we got it uh, back put together. And, and see, I learned a, a very important lesson that day. Always, always test your equipment, right? Always test your equipment. If it had been tested, right, once it's tested, you have confidence that it's, it's going to be what you need. And not just any confidence. I mean, I had a confidence in Jeff. Obviously, it was a bit of a misplaced confidence. Uh, he, he said that he knew what he's doing, but as it turned out, he only kind of knew what he's doing. And, and when you're 40 feet in the air, you don't want kind of confidence, right? You want that absolute assured confidence that you don't have to think twice about. Testing your equipment is what gives you that kind of proven confidence. After Jeff re-rigged it before I leaned back out over the edge of the cliff. We tested it. It worked great, and I was able to repel down easily and got my picture taken with several tourists at the bottom. It was a lot of fun. <laughs> I'm in their scrapbook now, our trip to South Dakota, and here's some kid with the climbing gear down there. Testing the equipment, that's what gives you that confidence. So what's this have to do? with this list of things that Paul just shared with us? Everything he went through tested his faith. And when your faith is tested, you can live with confidence. You know, we generally think it's a bad thing when when we face difficulties or hardships or trials, but the Bible tells us that we need to learn to look at those things completely differently. Think of James 1, right, where we read, Consider it all joy, my brethren, when you encounter various trials, knowing that the testing of your faith produces endurance. And let endurance have its perfect results so that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. I mean, would you like to have a faith that's lacking in nothing? I, I, I would. But the only way to get there is to have it tested. And the only way to test it is by facing troubles. And our problem is, you know, we'd like to have a faith like Paul's, but we don't want to go through the stuff that he had to go through. I read uh, somewhere that uh, someone said that trouble is the truest test of spiritual character and strength. How you react, how you respond uh, to uh, pressures when they come, to... um, uh, adversity when it strikes to uh, situations where everything goes wrong and and things seem to be falling apart. That's going to tell you the truth about your Christian character. But, But actually it does more than just expose the truth of it. It actually strengthens you. It is going through those things, those hard times, those trials, that we develop spiritual muscle and strength, and character. Paul experienced suffering, troubles from his own people, right? 39 lashes, five different times. 
Maybe you have hardship that's coming from your own people, your family, friends, co-workers, people that are closest to you. Paul experienced troubles from the non-believing world. Perhaps you're facing opposition and unjust treatment from those who do not know Christ. And Paul experienced troubles from living in a broken world. Those perils that happen to us just because things aren't right in this world. We, we all face that. And then there's the truth that because God wants to strengthen us, sometimes He brings trials into our lives just to test us. And although hardships and a test, they're never fun to go through, God does that because He loves us. Each test that we go through makes us stronger. It gives us the confidence to live life in assurance. It helps us to grow. And it shows the world around, at least in our sphere of influence, those in our sphere of influence, it shows them the genuineness and the authenticity of our faith. And God is glorified. That's why Paul listed all his hardships as a proof of his credentials. He was tested and still found faithful following Christ. Let's pray. Father God, all of us, I believe, want to be found faithful. And yet, few of us are willing to face the troubles and the hardships to have our faith tested. God, we don't want bad things to happen to us, but we know they will. That is part of following you and part of this life. So God, help us to face those things with the attitude in the heart that trusts you, that knows you as an anchor of the soul that will not fail. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.